Welcome to uh, part three of a three-part storytelling exercise, essentially, of <clears throat> about sort of the Hasidic wisdom. Um, as those of you who are here for the, the beginning of this, a couple of months ago, it's been a once-a-month event, and I talked a little about the Baal Shem Tov and the founder of Hasidism, um, and that the the Shem, the name that the Baal Shem Tov was the master of, because literally Baal Shem Tov means master of the of the good name um, in Hebrew. Baal is master and Shem is name and Tov is good. Master of the good name. The, the name is God's name. Um, even though the Talmud, uh, several places, says <clears throat> that one of the most important qualities anyone can have is a Shem Tov, a good name. And that what we're supposed to aspire to in our own personal lives is a Shem Tov. And the a Shem Tov, a good name, obviously is, uh, means our reputation. How people think about us when they hear our name. You know, you say Stephen Rubin and then what do they think? And what you want, of course, is that they think something positive, that they think that you're, uh, that you're a just person, that you're a compassionate person and that you're a righteous person on some level, and that they say nice things about you if they were going to talk about you. And that if you had as your goal in life to develop a Shem Tov, then you would act in such a way in your interactions with other human beings that the results would be creating a Shem Tov. That um, there's an advantage in having goals, uh, spiritual, ethical goals in life, one of which would be to have the kind of reputation that would make you, make your mother proud, that would make your mother proud. Um, and um, because everyone wants their mother to be proud of them. I don't think the rabbi said that in the Talmud, but, you know, <coughs> but they should have said that in the Talmud. Um, and everybody is, um, I don't know everybody, most people are insecure about themselves and about how they come across to people. It's one of the great challenges of human life is to conquer our own insecurities and not overcompensate for our insecurities and become bullies and things like that in life in general, um, fearing that that's the only way we can make a difference is, you know, to be bigger and badder and meaner and tougher than someone else. Uh, certainly there are lots of examples of that, people who, uh, kids and others, youths of various kinds, who walk around with guns uh, because it makes them feel important. You know, because if you point a gun at someone, suddenly you're really important. Um, and that obviously in, in Jewish tradition and in rabbinic values, um, how I got on that, I'll never know, but in rabbinic values, if you have as your goal developing your own soul in such a way as to leave a legacy of a Shem Tov, then you will, it will direct the kind of behavior that you are and the kind of person that you are. It can also, it can actually be, in a sense, a way of simplifying life. That is, look how complicated life is. All the choices we have to make all the time. All of the decisions with our friends, with our family, with work environments, with our peers, people that, who work for us, people for whom we work. All of the different challenges that we have and all the different choices we have to make every single day a hundred times a day, I'm sure more than a hundred, we're making choices. 
And ultimately, the quality of our lives is very much a reflection of the quality of our choices. The question is, what directs your choices? How do you know what choices to make in life? This is an ongoing, no matter how old we are, an ongoing life challenge. How do I know whether to choose right or left? How do I know whether to choose you know, black or white? How do I know which choice is going to be the best choice? And, you know, it's easy if you have a rule book. So if I give you a rule book and say, when you wake up in the morning, put the right shoe on first, and then put the left shoe on, say these words, and then say those words, say them in this order. <coughs> Excuse me from the coughing. It's been months. I just keep doing it for fun, um, <clears throat> evidently. the uh, If you have a rule book that tells you how to act all the time, makes life easier. You don't have to worry about which so many choices because you just follow the rule book. And fundamentalist versions of every religious tradition, in a sense, create a rule book, their own rule book that helps reduce the number of choices that you have if you're going to follow the rules and makes it easier to know what to do. In general, we have our own versions of that in Jewish tradition. Other people have their own versions of it. You know, as I've often shared, I get up in the morning there's a certain series of prayers, of blessings that I recite. Get up in the morning, I say, Thank you, God, that I woke up. And then I say a blessing over all my body parts that work and the ones that don't work. I say blessings over that too, because, of course, <coughs> the rabbis say you have to bless God for the bad just as you have to bless God for the good. Either way, it's yours. And you're alive. If you're alive, you're saying blessings. You know you're alive. So, you know, I was in the hospital for a while. I'm surprised to see him. And the first thing I said was, I'm so glad you're alive and here. You know, it's like came out a little crooked that way. But, you know, you knew what I meant. Here he is. So um, you say these blessings to, first of all, frame your life through a lens of gratitude. And secondly, I say them as a, as a spiritual discipline. If I were a traditional Jew, I might say the same blessings, but for, <coughs> for a different reason, because I'm supposed to, or because I think that's what God wants me to do. Oh, you're so sweet. I want a Shem Tov. It won't help. You, are, you, you have a Shem Tov. <laughs> it's Carol. That's your Shem Tov. Um, <clears throat> so... If you're a follower of any fundamentalist uh, version of uh, traditional religious uh, religion, then in, in general you, in a sense, do things because at some version you, God said so, or you think that that's, that's the right way to be, to follow these particular rules or these particular rituals in a particular order. And <clears throat> part of the, the, the divide between, I guess what I would loosely call liberal religion and traditional religion, they're not really good terms, but is that in progressive liberal traditions of all kinds, it's an understanding that these rituals and traditions and customs came about from human beings. That, you know, when we light candles on this table on Friday night and we have a kiddush cup there and we hold up the kiddush cup, and we bless the Kiddush cup, and we light the candles, and we say those words, and we have a challah, and we say the blessing over the challah, and we tear the challah. Why do we do that? Well, why do we do that, actually? As long as I ask rather than a rhetorical question. So why do we do those things? 
Tradition. New York, Fiddler on the Roof's playing again. One of, I think it's there, but yeah, it's there. <coughs> one of our congregants is producing it. I think Catherine Schreiber is now producing. Catherine Schreiber produces lots of Broadway shows. Anyway, enough of that. So tradition is one, but tradition. So we do it because of tradition. Why else do we do it? It's a way of, you know, thank you, God, for the bread that we eat is a blessing over sustenance. Gratitude for the food that we eat. You know, saying grace, so to speak, as we say in general American society. You bless the food. Why do you bless? In fact, the Talmud says it's forbidden to enjoy anything in life without a blessing. One of those fun Talmudic facts. It's forbidden to enjoy anything without a blessing. You're supposed to say a blessing. And in fact, the Talmud says, <clears throat> I use that phrase a lot, even though the Talmud doesn't say anything, it's people in the Talmud who actually say things, but it's easier just to say, in the Talmud you could find, that it says, and I think I mentioned this uh, in the previous week, that you were supposed to say a hundred, bless you, a hundred blessings a day. That was one of them. You're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day. So, why would the Talmud say you're supposed to say a hundred blessings a day? What's like? What's the point of that? So, so you live your life consciously instead of unconsciously. <clears throat> yeah. So you have a spiritual consciousness to your the arc of your day. If the I always think of it as it's kind of every day should be a blessing treasure hunt. Right? And if you approach the world as if every day is an opportunity for a blessing treasure hunt, how could I find a hundred blessings today? Imagine how your, your attitude would be about everything you're doing. It's like looking for the blessings in everything that's going on, in the good and in the, in the, the difficult that happens in life. You know, you're in a traffic jam, you're driving somewhere and you're on the freeway and you're not going anywhere, back to the idea of blessings and life's filled with blessings and curses and sometimes you can't tell which is which, you're sitting in traffic, how do you find a blessing in that? That's a real question. So it could be a time of calming you down. That takes a real effort because usually it's exactly the opposite. You're like, because you know, you can't, you're not going anywhere. I... <clears throat> Lovely couple invited us to go to um, Disney Hall a week or so ago to hear the L.A. Philharmonic. We said we'd love to go to Disney Hall. They said, come pick us up at like 5.15. So we did. They live up in Mandeville Canyon. We picked them up at 5.15. And two and a half hours later, I finally got downtown because it was like a nightmare going downtown. Two and a half hours of sitting every place you go. It's just like you're not going anywhere, you know? You're creeping. Two and a half hours to get downtown, literally. So, on the one hand, we decided we're not doing that anymore. But on the other hand, it was two and a half hours of talking with these people and schmoozing, which I was going to do anyway. So what's the difference if I'm sitting in my car, just as long as I'm paying attention so I don't get in an accident, or if I'm sitting in a restaurant, or if I'm sitting anywhere else. I was going to be with them for two of those two and a half hours anyway. Might as well. And there we were in the car together, having an opportunity to talk about all kinds of things that we talked about. So I can see that through either side of the lens. This is a nightmare. This is a curse. Oh, look at the blessing. 
I don't have to worry about what I'm ordering, any other distractions. I'm creeping along and we're schmoozing about life. So if you see the world as a giant everyday blessing treasure hunt, it shifts your attitude about the things that are going on in your life, which is, in many ways, what the rabbis meant when they said you should recite 100 blessings a day. They said exactly what the Hasidim are all about, which is what I've been talking about for the last two times and tonight, which is finding the sacred in the everyday. Transforming the simplest things into something transcendent. The Baal Shem Tov taught that every word you overhear, I love this one, every, it's not in any of those things I handed out, but just for fun, every word you overhear, no matter how seemingly inconsequential, is in fact spoken for your ears alone. <clears throat> That's kind of a crazy thing to say. Why did he say that? <clears throat> he was talking about, you know, people gossip, people listening, whatever. It's true. It, in what way is it true? Huh? It's like you never know where wisdom is going to come from. The Talmud says, Ezehu Chacham, who is wise, and answers, Halomed Mikol Adam, the one who learns from everyone. You know, just because this person is the teacher, quote, at the moment, doesn't mean the person next to you isn't a lot wiser and can't give you something that's, you know, happens to be exactly what you need today. While I'm talking about the Baal Shem Tov, you know, maybe that you actually need a plumber more than you need a Baal Shem Tov that your neighbor can tell you. So the Baal Shem Tov says, imagine if you assumed every word that you hear is for you. You've got to figure out, well, what does that mean? What can I learn from that? How is that a blessing in my life? It transforms the everyday. It also is an opportunity to take something that you're not supposed to do, which is eavesdrop on other people, and turn it into God is speaking to you in some way. Because that's essentially what, what he would say. Every moment in life, every moment, life presents you with another opportunity to look within yourself and see where you can improve the quality of your thought your word, and your deed. Do not imagine that the world revolves around you. It doesn't. But you know that whatever is in the world is in you as well. Let reality be your Rebbe. Let the reality that you experience in life be your teacher. That's what Rebbe is, your teacher. So many spiritual disciplines teach you, including Jewish spiritual discipline, the discipline of Jewish spirituality, better way of putting it, teach you that you can learn some of your most valuable lessons from the people who irritate you the most. Usually your children, but you can, sometimes your partners or your spouses or for sure your exes, you can learn so many valuable lessons from your ex-husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends and things like that. Truly, if you hold that relationship in that sense, you're able to learn so much about, first of all, yourself, obviously, because the goal in life really is having a spiritual consciousness in everything that you do. 
So that's why you, you start out traditionally with these blessings in the morning. You're not just getting out of bed and growling, you know, I'm late, I'm supposed to be somewhere, I got no time to eat, I, you know, I got to get a shake, a shower, or whatever you have to do. That's one way of starting your day. And the other way is, Thank you, God, for giving me my soul back. It's like, you, you can't be running out the door, really, I've tried it, while you're, while you're doing that. You can't be doing that. You do one or the other. So if you have the spiritual discipline to begin with prayers of gratitude, it transforms your attitude about everything that you do. Particularly if you're looking for a hundred of them a day. Then you're looking for them everywhere. So that's the point of that. Ultimately, the point is, of all of these things, comes down to, so I'll go back to where I started. I know you don't think I remember where I started, but I do which was the Shem Tov, a good name. Not God's name so much as your own name as the Shem Tov, that one of the, one of the simpler, more focused ways of directing your choices about whether it should be right or left or black or white or whatever it happens to be as you go through your choices is to ask yourself what the consequences of your choices might be. Because one of the greatest indicators of personal wisdom is our ability or lack thereof to anticipate the consequences of our behavior before we choose something. It's one of the things that we work with on kids all the time because kids very young and kids very old tend to live right in the present. That's it. It's whatever's happening right this minute, you know, and not think about the consequences. That's why we have in the legal profession, we have certain ages where you don't get tried as an adult yet because you're not considered to be liable in the same way for your behavior because it's understood that you're not so smart about what the consequences of this choice or that choice might be. You know, now with the latest brain research and all is clearly into your mid-20s and beyond, that that certainly boys um, aren't responsible for their choices. You know, they tend to act without thinking through what it means, really, what the consequences mean. Um, happens all the time. So it's because we understand that one of the one of the qualities of adult wisdom is exactly that quality: the ability to, and before you act, to think about. What's going to happen before you talk? Think, I mean, how many relationships get buried because people say things and then go, oops. If I'd have thought for a moment, I wouldn't have said that because, as the rabbis say, words are like arrows shot from a bow. Once they leave our mouths, we don't know where they're going to land and what damage they're going to do. It's just like that. So, and you can't put it back. It's out there. It's rattling around in the world doing damage. I don't know about you, but I have had the experience because I talk a lot all the time and <clears throat> do it professionally and otherwise of words that I said coming back to me way later than I ever said them. Years later after I said something, it comes back to me bouncing around various places 
Of course, in my profession, I have the experience of words I didn't say coming back to me as if I said them all the time. So <laughs> that's just the nature of, I remember what you said, Rabbi, at that Hayali sermon, and then they quote something that I, I'm sure I never said. But as long as they liked it, I figured it would be okay. So something, you know, because people hear not necessarily what you say. As you all know from your relationships with people, you think you're saying this and they're hearing that. And you're going, how did they hear that? I know that's not what I said. I said this. And people hear that because, you know, we hear in our own context as well. So <clears throat> anyway, so the fundamental principle of this good name thing, this Shem Tov, is in a sense for everyone to want to be a Baal Shem Tov a master of the good name, of their own name, of having their own name be emulating holiness. Our, one of our tasks spiritually in Jewish tradition in life, I would say, is to imitate God. Uh, certainly throughout rabbinic literature, as God is compassionate, we are supposed to be compassionate. As God is just, we are supposed to act justly. You know, to sort of hold God up and the qualities of God that we enumerate through our prayer services and through the Torah and through rabbinic literature, the good ones anyway, as qualities that we would want to emulate in our lives. Imitatio Dea, I think, is the technical non-Hebrew term. But, you know, imitating God. It's kind of like what Christians say when they say, what would Jesus do? Right? What would Jesus do? In theory, it's <laughs> what would be the best, highest way of responding to this particular challenge. That's what you mean when you say something like that. Right? You know, what's the best in me? If the best in me were to respond to this, what would that look like? As opposed to the person who is ruled by my passions or my anger or my frustrations or my instincts that aren't always the best. And what sets us apart from the animal kingdom as a whole is our ability to make these choices that are actually contrary to our own instinct. We all know that in general, animals respond and function according to instinct. You know, you can mostly predict what they're going to do if you know the instinctual behavior of a certain different species of animals. You know what they're going to do. Human beings are not so much. You know, some ways, but not so much. What makes us able to rise above that is that we are able to uh, conquer our animal instincts in life. That's, in fact, the rabbis of the Talmud literally ask who is strong and their answer is the one who's able to conquer your own passions, your own animal instincts, to have your brain control your body and not the other way around. So that before we act, we think, what, what is this going to mean? How's it, who, what kind of person am I going to be if I choose this rather than that? If I respond this way rather than that way? You know, if I hold my tongue or if I say what's on my mind, if I strike out physically or otherwise, or I don't. Who, who am I then? And, <clears throat> and we become not only what we think about, but we actually become to other people not what we think about, but we become what we say and do. Because I don't know what you're thinking about. You could all be like, I don't know, not in the room at the moment, somewhere else while I'm jabbering on. Who knows where you are? I have no, no clue. And you never know what's going on in someone else's mind. You know, all you know is what they say and what they do. So, what they say and what they do is who they are to you. And likewise for you. Who you are to everyone with whom you interact is simply two things. What you say and what you do. That's who you are. 
when I work with bar and bat mitzvah kids, which I'm almost exclusively not doing anymore, although I do have a bat mitzvah and a bar mitzvah coming up next month, uh, the only one of the year, I talk about this with them. <clears throat> Who are you? How do you determine how people are going to see you in life? If you had a magic wand and could wave it, and people would look at you any way you wanted them to look at you and see you and think about you any way you wanted, what, what would you want them to think about you? How would you want them to perceive you? What would you want them to say about you? In fact, I use this and say, imagine you were overhearing a couple of friends of yours who didn't know you were there, and they're talking about you. What would you want them to be saying? What would you want to be hearing about that? To get back to the same notion that we have some control we don't have. People will say whatever they want to say, but some control we do have. At the very least, if our goal is a Shem Tov all the time, we hold that as sort of the, the flag at the end of the race, then we know that's the direction we want to go. We want to go and act and say in such a way every day that <clears throat> what people are going to say about us is more likely to be the Shem Tov. So, um, I did pass these out because I want to read some of these with you, and they illuminate some of the lessons of what I think Hasidic tradition is really all about. Um, <coughs> hmm. <clears throat> so let's do number seven. If Some of you, that's the first thing, and some of you I passed out the old version, so you have to turn to seven. Uh, but let's do number seven, <clears throat> and uh, because I have the microphone, I'll read it. Reb Yisrael of Rushin paid a surprise visit to his Hasidim and found them sitting around a table. His Hasidim are his disciples, sitting around a table, idly eating and drinking. The Rebbe frowned, clearly disappointed at the actions of his students. One among them stood and said, Rebbe, I heard Reb Pinchas of Koritz once say that a gathering such as this, Hasidim reveling in friendship, could be likened to the mitzvah of Torah study. Reb Yisrael said, I would not think to contradict Reb Pinchas, but the analogy depends on how the thing is done. But all we are doing is talking and eating, another student said. As long as we recite the proper blessings, benediction, how can we do this incorrectly? Reb Yisrael replied, it's a matter of intention, which in Hebrew is kavanah, focus, intention. It's a matter of intention. If you place yourself last that others may go first, then your act is selfless and holy. If you place yourself first, it's selfish and smacks of idolatry. If you do something for another or for God with no thought of reward or gain, you are hallowing the deed and uplifting the act. In that case, your action is holy. When you do something to further your own ends, you are debasing the deed and concealing the divine. In that case, your action is sinful. Still not satisfied, the chassid said, Rebbe, what if my action is itself sinful, but my intention is pure? What if, heaven forbid, I speak ill of another to save a friend from being hurt? Is that a sin or not? I love this story. Intention is everything, Reb Yisrael said. If your intention is for the sake of heaven, that is, if it's for the good of the other and not to benefit yourself, even a sinful act can reveal the light of God. So, was that confusing or was that uh, illuminating? <clears throat> what do you think? Confusing. confusing. So, what's the point? What do you think the point of the story is? What? 
What was Reb Yisrael's? What did he care about? Nobody knows your intention. So here's the question. So, beautifully put. So no one knows your intention. You know your intentions. So if you're a Hasidic Rebbe, who knows your intention? God knows your intention. Because God knows everything, because that's the nature of God. So you know your intention. I mean, you know, how do I look in this dress? Do I look fat in this? You know, sometimes the answer is always you look great. And sometimes the answer is, you know, that doesn't look so good. You look better in that one. Because sometimes she really wants to know. How do I look in this dress? And I'm the only one there. It's not that she wants, she's looking for a compliment. She wants to know how she looks in the dress. You know, how is it fitting? How is it whatever? There's a million things that one could look in the dress or not in a dress. Or is it the right one for where we're going? Is this the right thing to wear for for whatever? Sometimes the answer is, I love you. Doesn't matter how you look. Sometimes, no, don't wear that one. You know, and <clears throat> Rabbi Yisrael cares about our intention in all of our actions, that we should intend them for good, that we should intend them for the sake of heaven in this kind of a Jewish traditional rabbinic expression, L'shem Shemayim, for the sake of heaven, meaning to do a mitzvah. And sometimes you lie to do a mitzvah. There's off, lots of times when a lie can be a mitzvah. Like somebody find an example of when a lie can be a mitzvah. <clears throat> Otherwise, I'll have to. It should save someone's feelings. When in fact, it doesn't matter, blue or red, but answering the right, in the right way for that person, save someone's feelings. That, that otherwise would be hurt needlessly. I mean, there are times when people's feelings have to be hurt for their own good. That happens. You have to tell the truth about things, even though you know it's going to hurt someone's feelings. There are other times when in fact, it's not the case at all. You might as well not hurt someone's feelings, right? That's what we all call white lies or something like that, right? They're, they're l'shem shemayim. They're with the, with the intention of making someone feel better about themselves, feel okay about themselves or the situation or whatever. You know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. This happens to everyone, whatever, you know? Say it to little kids. They wet their pants or whatever. I mean, it's okay. It happens to everyone. It happens to me. You know, whatever, whether it's true or not. It's something to say. You know, it's not about whether that's a factual statement. That's not the point of the statement, is telling the truth. The point of the statement is healing. The, the, the point of the statement is helping. So that's what Reb Yisrael means by intention, I think. But it's also the case that only you know your intention. So the person out here still is going to judge you not by your intention, unless you tell them, well, this is what I intended to do. I'm sorry it hurt your feelings. It wasn't my intention to hurt your feelings. My intention was whatever it happens to be. Because human relationships are messy. That's the reality. In this particular story, the point was, there's several, actually there's several points in this story. Because the first thing that the Hasid said to his Rebbe was, this other Rebbe, 
other famous person, Reb Pinchas of Koretz, who's a famous Rebbe also, Hasidic Rebbe, said that a gathering like this where we're in friendship, celebrating and sharing friendship together, is the equivalent of studying Torah. Let's start with that question, statement. What do you think of that one? It's a cop-out? Hmm. Yes, yes, we do. This, yes, this week's Torah portion, Vayakhel, means to gather together. It's Kehilat Israel, Kehila, community, is really a gathering together of people and making it a sacred community. I won't say any more for a minute. Let you say. So, in what way would you say, if you were going to support Reb Pinchas of Koretz, in what way would you say gathering together for a social event, socially, not for Torah study, could be considered the equivalent of Torah study? Janet. So it could be that the gathering, regardless of its, in, even if its intention was social, let's have, let's go out and have dinner together, you know, <coughs> that the result of that gathering is that you learn, that you expand your mind, that you learn from each other, that if you're open to, and often it's because you're open in friendship that you're able to hear someone else share things with you and, and learn things. So that's one possibility. What's another possibility, so Carol? the blessings of community. You know, and how wonderful <clears throat> and lucky that people have each other, that they can be in each other's community because it would be that much poorer if we didn't. Right. So when we have things like at KI, like KISS, which is our women's group, right? What's it stand for? Society of Sisters, right? Kehillat yeah, Israel Society of Sisters. Kiss. You go on a weekend retreat, right? So it's not all Torah study on your weekend retreat. It's being together. It's the being together part. And then there's also the bonus of, you know, Rabbi Amy's there and doing things and you're doing whatever you're doing. But it's really the going and being togetherness that creates a sense of the sacred. You're there in a context of K.I., out, you know, in Palm Springs or wherever you, you were, Palm Springs somewhere, right, having this event. Um, and in fact, in traditional Judaism, Shabbat, one of the ways you celebrate Shabbat is not going anywhere and sitting around a table, you know. And for the Hasidim, for sure, the Hasidic Tish, the table of the Rebbe was like the place to be, not just because the Rebbe is going to give you words of wisdom, but because in the gathering together as a community, you reinforce a sense of being a part of something bigger than yourself, which is what Torah is all about. Torah, yes, it's about behavior and doing the right thing and the ethics and the Ten Commandments and all those other things and our history and all what it means to be part of a Jewish civilization, but it's also about belonging. I mean, how many times those of us in a Reconstructionist congregation hear some Reconstructionist rabbis say, what gives Jews their identity is not primarily belief, but belonging. It's about belonging to the Jewish people. That's what this is saying. The saying that it's the equivalent of Torah study 
Torah study then becomes like a, um, a metaphor. You know, it's not really about studying Torah. It's using the expression, it's the equivalent of studying Torah, because studying Torah seemed like the highest spiritual act you can do is study Torah. So what he's saying is, there are other ways of having a spiritual experience than studying Torah that are also great, and they're also valuable, and they're also sacred. And in fact, gathering together in friendship, in chevruta, with the chavra, is one of those. Just like we have a whole series of what we call tikkun olam activities, right? Healing the world activities. They're not Torah study, but they're the equivalent of that in our minds. We built this building when we designed this building. We designed this building with great thought. One of part of that thought was those windows over there and those windows over here and that window over there, which is now covered up because you can't see it anymore because we grew too much and now we have an office in there and we didn't used to. What's on the other side of those windows? Library. Library. What's on the other side of those windows? Chapel. Chapel. So the architects said, Reconstructionist congregation is all about community. So we're going to build a synagogue that reflects a community of rooms, that reflects the different ways uh, that Jewish tradition recognizes you can aspire to sacredness and holiness in your life, in the context of a synagogue, so that study and prayer become equivalents. This is the prayer space. I mean, it's other spaces, obviously, but it's it's the prayer space. This is our sanctuary. That's the library. What do you do in a library? You read. You got books. You know, we're the people of the books. So they built that on purpose with those windows, literally as a way of connecting study of Torah to prayer, to Whatever goes on, this is a the chapel, but the chapel we use as a multi-purpose room for all kinds of other things, gatherings together, board meetings, or there are all kinds of things like that. Used to be anyway. So um, it was, that's the notion is that every, and out here used to be able to sit where you're sitting, look through that window, and see an olive tree. You can't anymore because there's a shade there, but the olive tree is still there. And you'd look right through to where my office used to be. That's now Rabbi Bernstein's office. And you would see the olive tree. The olive tree was a way of, as a physical, really symbol of Israel. Makes sense. Olives and olive trees and peace. And here we're in the sanctuary with book study over there and a chapel over here with all kinds of different social activities going on and a connection to Israel beyond that with the visit, the visibility of that olive tree over there that's lit at night and all the different things and the, the, perp, the point was to uh, to physically in the architecture of the building remind us that there are many paths to spirituality and holiness in life which is really what all that the Pinchas was saying it's not just about Torah study it's not just about picking up a prayer book and reading the right prayer there are a hundred different ways of experiencing the sacred in your life if you're open to it. Tikkun Olam is one of those. There are people, their religious experience is going out and making dinner at Turning Point Shelter. You know, I had the privilege of being out in, uh, in North Hollywood at uh, the Valley Shelter, which I was uh, one of the people able, at the very beginning of the Valley Shelter when we started, they celebrated their 30th sort of anniversary um, and had some of us who were the founders of it at the time there and speaking and doing whatever. And it was very cool to see this place is still around 30 years later. Um, 
that used to be an old funky motel that you rented by the hour um, that we turned into a homeless shelter. And now it's the biggest full-service homeless shelter in Los Angeles. But, you know, it's like people and people from every, all the variety of churches in the valley, mostly in the valley because it's in the valley, and synagogues, that's their spiritual experience, going there, volunteering, helping, being a part of that 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 world of the homeless shelter. That's what the Hasidim are all about. It's saying you can find sparks of holiness in everyday experiences. They're the equivalent of Torah study, which is the highest level you can get of, you know, in, in a rabbinic mind, because that's what the rabbis did was they studied Torah. Okay, enough of that. Unless anyone's desperate to say something else. Uh... Uh, okay, number nine. Skip number eight. Number nine. Called without a doubt. His Hasidim asked Reb Elimelech of Lezhansk if he were certain that he was assured a place in the world to come. That's in Hebrew, the Olam Haba, as in when you die, you're going to go to heaven, basically. That's what they're asking him, the world to come. Absolutely, the Rebbe replied without hesitation. And how, Rebbe, can you be so certain when we die in this world, we go before the heavenly court in the world above. Standing before the divine court, we are asked certain questions regarding Torah, Avodah, and Mitzvahs. Avodah is worship, Mitzvahs is Mitzvah. Answer these properly and you'll go to the world to come. And you know these questions, Rabbi, the students asked? Yes. And you know the answers? Yes. And will you share them with us? The questions are the same for all of us, he said. Your answers must be your own. Yet I will tell you just what I will tell them. They will ask, Rebbe, did you study Torah to the best of your ability? And I will answer honestly, no. They will ask, Rebbe, did you fully surrender to God and worship? And I will answer honestly, no. Then they will ask me, Rebbe, <laughs> did you do the mitzvahs and good deeds you could do while alive? And I will answer honestly, no. And then they will say, if so, then you're telling us the truth. And for that alone, you're welcome into the world to come. I love that story. That's a great story. What's the point? From Reb Elimelech. Tell the truth is one of the points. What else could you learn from this story? Yeah, exactly. If you're human, you're not perfect, which is perfect. You know, you're perfectly human. You're perfectly who you are. Having, accepting your own limitations, your own insecurities is part of growing up and being willing to not beat yourself up for your whole life about all the things you didn't do, could have done, should have done, would have done, could have done today. Because all of us can do that forever. One of the great challenges of life is not beating yourself up for all the things you don't do because that's an endless list. For everyone, there's a bottomless pit of things we could have done that we didn't do. We could have said that we didn't say. It's literally endless, right? So if you go down that dark path, you are lost in the maze of darkness forever, which is why there are lots of <clears throat> lots of folk tales about things like that, people getting lost in dark in the woods and things like that. Really, it's about us being lost in our own darkness, and, and the idea of not going there, because we go there from time to time, you know? I mean, 
One of the things I do often is officiate at funerals. Obviously, that's part of what rabbis do. And one of the things that happens around funerals is that families gather together and they talk about the deceased. And friends often (coughs) do similar. And very often, part of my job and those moments of great emotion and, and grief and sadness is comforting the family members who feel guilty about any number of a thousand things they didn't do or didn't say to the person, for the person, on behalf of the person, or that they did say, that they shouldn't have said, that they wished they hadn't said or done to the person who is now no longer there, alive anyway. Because all of us have those. All of us have regrets. All of us are perfectly human in the best sense and in the real sense that we make mistakes. You know, that's how we grow. That's how we change. Who's going to ever be frozen at any, pick an age that you want to just, the other. if I could just stay, whatever, that would be perfect. That was my perfect person at age, what, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, what age is it that that's your perfect person? You know, you need to be perfectly the one you are when today, because after all, it's all you get is today. Here it is. You know, we all live only one day at a time. Here's the day. This is the only day. <coughs> and regrets and guilt are almost the inevitable accompaniment, accompaniment to death and mortality. It just brings up lots of things for people, obviously. And some of that, if you're able to look at it realistically and say, yeah, you know, I wish I'd said this or done this or done that, but this is the way human beings are, and you put it aside, and then you experience and celebrate the relationship and the person whom you loved, you know, that's the best you can do in life. Because otherwise you're going down a dark path that never, ever, ever, ever ends. Just by definition, there's an endless number of things that you didn't say in in the world and in life and in relationships, right? Just by definition. So it's part of the, the dance and the art of relationships. So um, anything else about this? Yeah. Doing something? Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. It's also recognizing that, you know, we all have our limitations, and you need on the one hand to feel good about yourself, and on the other hand to know there's always more to be done. There's always more to be done. It's it's trying to keep that balance. It's like I mentioned, I think, last time, the the traditional notion that it's a high holiday notion that you often hear in the holidays we're supposed to have two notes in two different pockets. And one of them says, the whole world was created for my sake. And the other one says, I am but dust and ashes. You know, and you're supposed to enter the high holiday experience with those, you know, and sitting there going, yeah, you know, and the whole world, you know, and back and forth. That's the balance of life. And you need them both because you need spiritual self-esteem. You need to feel that you matter. You need to believe that there's a reason the Torah begins with human beings are created, but Selim Elohim in the image of God. 
We, the Jewish people, thousands of years ago, asserted very boldly every single person in this room is made in God's image. That's an amazing thing to have said in an era when people didn't matter at all in most places in the world. Just pile the slaves up and, you know, how many, how many have to die to build a pyramid? Whatever. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter because they didn't matter. We have a Torah that doesn't say, if you're rich, you're made in God's image. If you're powerful, you're made in God's image. The rest of you can just be whatever. It says, Adam that human beings were created, bless you, in the image of God. And there's no except. It doesn't say except women, except gay, except this, except tall, except black, except white, except people who speak Arabic or Spanish or whatever. It just says human beings are made in the divine image. That's a remarkable statement. I mean, many of you have heard me say before, I think it's actually the most powerful statement in the whole Torah. You could just have that one and not have any of the rest of the Torah. And if you believed that and lived that, it would transform the world. If every time you looked at someone, regardless of who they are, you saw back a reflection of holiness, of this made in God's image, you would treat that person in a certain way, different than many of us treat many of us in the world. So you need spiritual self-worth. You need the whole world was created for my sake, that kind of... But you also can't be arrogant and say, well, therefore, I'm going to step on you because the whole world's created for my sake, so you obviously don't matter. Guess what? It was created for your sake, too. <laughs> it was created for everybody else's sake, too. That's the real realization that our lives come and go like this. I'm, but dust and ashes means where did I come from? Who am I? I'm this body that came out of dust and ashes. So we, the same Torah, same chapter, says, you know, God kind of scooped up the earth and said, okay, blew into fashioned a man and blew into the nostrils the breath of life, and here we are. <clears throat> so recognizing our mortality, recognizing our brevity on this planet, instills in us one of the most fundamental, certainly in the Hasidic world and in all of Jewish life, values, which is humility. It's one of the most important religious, spiritual values you can have is Humility recognizing that even though the whole world for us is all about us, because that's how else it's hard to meet any other way, because this is where we live, inside here, at the same time, if that's the only way you live, then you become you know, one of the bullies of the world, one of the herders of the world. And so you remember that to have humility... That's enough of that. Okay. Hmm. Good. Um, okay, number 10. We'll do number 10. It's cute. <clears throat> also, I like it. Because it's about a kid. Child wisdom. I'm scaring him away. The day before becoming Bar Mitzvah, Reb Yisrael of Ruchin was called into his father's study. We've met Reb Yisrael before. Now it's when he's 13. His father, Reb Shalom Shachna Friedman, said to him, Tomorrow, my son, you will receive a very special visitor, one who will not leave you for the rest of your life. Are you prepared to welcome this guest lovingly as befits one of her stature? Yes, father. This guest, and this is the boy talking. Yes, father, this guest is the Yetzer Hatov. That's the good inclination. The passion for selflessness, goodness, kindness, and compassion. 
I began to prepare for her arrival long ago. Really, Red Shalom Simcha said, and when was that? His son answers, when her partner, the Yetzer Hara, that is the evil inclination, the passion for selfishness, came to join me. I received her respectfully, and I said, you know, that you and the Yetzer Hatov, you and the good inclination, are partners. You both dwell together in every heart. It would be unseemly of me to welcome one partner without the other. So I convinced the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, to leave and return only when the Yetzer, with the Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination. So in this way, I'm prepared to welcome them both into my heart together. Okay, what is this all about? See if you can figure it out. Huh? Yeah, he's, well, he's kind of one of the great Hasidic masters. So at 13, he was already smarter than everybody else in the world. So, okay, so what, is, what does this mean? What's going on here? What? So it's acknowledging that we have choices. We have, and our choices in this case, using this example, the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Ra, we have sort of good and evil in all of our hearts. And it's up to us to choose all the time. Not to be hard on us because we've all got the Yetzir Ra in us. Okay, lovely. Who else? What else does this mean? What do you think? What's going on with this kid? This precocious, this precocious young child. Yeah. Yes, it's acknowledging <laughs> that there's good and bad always. You don't have one without the other. <clears throat> the, the, um, when I said before, who is strong, the, the Talmud says, who is strong, the one who conquers his, today they say his or her, um, passions, Literally, it says, the one who conquers his Yetzer, HaKovesh et Yetzro, one who conquers his Yetzer Hara, his evil inclination. That's the Hebrew, literally. It's recognizing that we have, and there's something similar in, like, I think probably every culture, some version of this. In the Jewish culture, it's, uh, we have a Yetzer Tov and a Yetzer Ra, good and evil inclination. We, all of us, have a Yetzer Tov and a Yetzer Ra in here hiding out somewhere, wherever it is, in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your wherever it is. We have, and they're, they're partners, that is, you don't get one without the other. There is nobody on the planet who only has one or the other, in theory. <clears throat> I know, we're not going to go there. But, in theory. In fact, Jewish theology and Jewish ethics is founded on the notion that every single human being has choices that we have Yetzir Tov and Yetzir Ra, a good and evil inclination. And they are arm wrestling all the time. They are fighting with each other all the time. This boy who's about to have his bar mitzvah, just think about teenagehood, uh, recognized that early on the Yetzir Tov, the Yetzir Hara showed up, the evil inclination showed up. But in, in Jewish tradition, in the rabbinic tradition, the, the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, isn't about evil, it's about things like your sexual urges, and those are also those. Those are part of the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination. Your destructive urges, and often sexual urges, become destructive. I'm involved in a 
in a uh, project called Home Shalom, some of you know, that's about raising the consciousness of the Jewish community on the issue of domestic violence in the Jewish community and dating violence, and because um, it's a much bigger problem than we mostly acknowledge. I've got a day of learning happening next week on the 16th for rabbis and cantors and educators that I'm running up at the American Jewish University on uh, domestic violence in the Jewish community with a partnership with the Board of Rabbis and the Family Violence Project of Jewish Family Service. So um, over the course of the year, as I've been preparing for this and working with them, you know, it's sort of more and more examples of what I hear in this context would say people's yetzer hara, evil inclination, getting the better of them and taking it out on their partner, uh, their own insecurities, their own whatever, um, and using sexuality as one of the primary ways of of domestic violence, the forced sexual sexuality, um, date, rape, and dating experience, and something like one out of three teens uh, reports some kind of um, experience of uh, of abuse um, in dating um, to one degree or another. And there's a, obviously lots of different kinds of abuse and emotional abuse and verbal abuse and financial abuse and sexual abuse and physical abuse and all those other things. But it's about this notion that we we have the Yitzhar, all of us have this in us and our challenge is to control it, not let it control us. That's Kind of that's the simple version of doing that. So <clears throat> here's a kid reaching in puberty, whatever, with whatever raging hormones there might be that go on saying, when that guy showed up, I told him to leave, you know, because he's a Hasidic Rebbe in, in waiting, <coughs> and wait till the Yetzer Tov, his partner, the good inclination, showed up. When they came together, it'd be okay. Then I'd be willing to entertain and accept the Yetzer Hara into my life because I have a balance, because life is about balance. It's not trying to ban. In fact, there's a wonderful story in the Talmud about how the rabbis once invoked the Baal Shem Tov, God's name, to banish the Yetzer Hara from the world. The evil inclination was banished from the world. So according to the story in the Talmud, after the evil inclination was banished from the world, no eggs were laid no, nothing was built. Nothing was ever created again. So they had to bring the HRRA back, the evil inclination back, because that same energy misused is the energy used for creativity and building and, and procreation, obviously. You know, you can rape somebody or you can make love with somebody. It's not the same act, but it's the same act. You know what I mean in that sense? So it's, it's like fire, you burn things down or you light things up. It's just, it's the fire. How you use the fire is what matters. You know, there's fire out there. That's candles and wax, you know, uh, and a wick. And, and, but it's different depending upon how you use it. Same with the Yetzir Hara, with our evil inclination. And the idea is to have, to recognize we have it. And then, but we also have our good inclinations that can overcome, transcend, and balance out all of those energies so that they get channeled in a way that's creative and productive and serves the, the Lashem Shemayim, serves God, that is, in that sense, serves a sense of the sacred so that relationships become sacred. Relationships can become horrible and abusive 
or they can become the source of holiness in your life, which is what they're supposed to be. That's why the tradition says when two people get married, there's really three. There's, if it's a heterosexual relationship, husband and wife and God to be successful, meaning that they're supposed to be helpmates and spiritual partners. That's why we, today, I did a wedding uh, a couple of days ago. What day is today? Monday. Saturday night, had a wedding. One of our young kids who grew up in this congregation, Kate Barsky, sweet young lady, got married, 23, got married. Um, and um, why was I going there? I don't know. Anyway, the... Um, the, we had a, they had a ketubah along with a marriage license. That's where I was going. Ketubah, as many of you know, Jewish marriage license certificate, um, originally a legal document, ketubah, and in Orthodox circles still considered to be a Jewishly legal document, of course. <coughs> the ketubah was originally, in case you don't know, a prenuptial agreement. <coughs> Jewish civilization being ancient, was always very male-centered, so it was easy for a husband to divorce a wife, hard for a wife to divorce a husband. So a couple thousand years ago, a rabbi named Meir created this document, it's called the Ketubah, which essentially said that if the groom left the bride after the wedding, you know, <clears throat> and then she'd be entitled to 200 zuzim and some other things, camels and stuff. So it's no longer technically the legal document because now you need a license from the state. Ever since the diaspora a couple thousand years ago, Jewish law says the law of the land of the country takes precedence over Jewish law. You have to follow the law of wherever you're living. You don't get to say, well, Jewish law says whatever. You follow the American law. So you need a marriage license if you want to be legal. But people today, as did Kate and her lovely husband, James, they had a a ketubah, not because they wanted a prenuptial agreement, but because the ketubah then is a symbol of the fact that the joining of their lives is more than a legal agreement that it's fundamentally the spiritual partnership between them. So these two documents are a way of sort of symbolizing that in their relationship. And they pick their own text and all of that. That's what this is about. That's the sort of the balance of what life is about. Recognizing that we have a Yetzir Tov and a Yetzir Ra always in our lives. So, enough of that. But I like that. Uh, Hang on. Because time flies when I'm having fun. What did I want to read? Go to number 13. I can go back, but I'm going to randomly pick a few. Then I want you to tell me if you know any. Reb Zusha, the child and the thief. Reb Zusha of Hanapoli went to visit his Rebbe, Reb Davber the Magad of Metzrich. I have heard, Rebbe, Reb Zusha said, that there are ten principles of divine service, but I have yet to learn what they are. I'm hopeful that you can teach them to me. Rev Dov Bear said, I cannot teach them to you, but I can point to those who can. And who might these be, asked Reb Zusha. You can learn the first three principles from a child and the next seven from a thief. Seeing that Reb Zusha didn't understand, the Magid continued. Magid means teacher, by the way. From a child, you can learn three things. Be merry for no reason. Never waste a moment's time. And demand what you want in a loud voice. And from a thief, you can learn seven things. Do your work in secret. If you do not complete a task one night, return to it the next. 
Love your coworkers. Risk your life to achieve your goal. Be ready to exchange all you have for even the smallest gain. Be willing to endure physical hardship and be devoted to your work and give no thought to doing anything else. Okay. So, I know, you think it's a dumb story. No. So, start with the child. You can learn three things. Be merry for no reason, never waste a moment's time, and demand what you want in a loud voice. What does he mean, be merry for no reason? Three things we learn from a child. What's the first one? Allow yourself to enjoy life. When we become adults, as we grow up, we abandon the pure joy of just playing. And we have to have a reason. We go, let's see, I can fit that in between 9 and 10. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go play racquetball because it's healthy for me. I would schedule my time and do whatever, and all of a sudden it becomes a scheduled activity that you're doing as opposed to what he suggests, the abandonment of kids just like, you know, everyone's story about getting kids birthday presents and they play with a box. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. It doesn't really matter. That's not the, the toy that matters so much. It's just, if they're young enough, it's just, you know, play with the stuffing in the box. It doesn't really matter. It's the ability to enjoy the moment. Part of this is the ability to be in, present in the moment. Uh, beautiful <clears throat> and it clears your head of totally. right instead of planning thinking doing you know writing why can I move this into that it shifts your whole consciousness into Bouncing the ball into being present in the moment and letting go. It's about letting go of all of the thoughts of we, we think too much as we get older. We think too much. We're always thinking and planning and doing and judging. Mostly it's about judging, actually. It's we judging everything we're doing or not doing. Oh my God, I don't have time. How come I'm not doing this? How come I'm not doing this? I forgot to do that. Shouldn't I be doing this? Whatever you're doing, you're judging that you should be doing something else. It's very hard to be doing what you're doing because you're thinking of the things you're not doing while you're doing what you're doing, right? It's like every, you drive yourself crazy and everybody does it. It's like, ah, I know I'm doing this, but I have five other things to do. Maybe I should be doing the other one. You know, and then you're not really doing anything because you're half here and half there. So bouncing the ball is exactly going, I'm right here right now. That's it. Free it up. Let it go. Okay, beautiful. So that's the first thing you can learn. Be merry for no reason. From kids, you learn never waste a moment's time. How do, they, how do kids teach you never waste a moment's time? Because they don't have a time awareness. It's like, tell a little kid, I hang out with the preschool all the time because they're my favorite group. So, you know, they're on my level. So I bring my guitar, I sing with the preschool kids and do whatever. <clears throat> and, you know, it's like, tell the three-year-old, 
it's going to be your birthday in two weeks. What? You know, two weeks? Tomorrow? Next week? Ten minutes from now? You know, it's like there's no sense of time at all. It means nothing at all. So why is that a good thing? <laughs> What's the good thing about being, being in the moment again? There's a common theme here. Being in the moment. <coughs> being present in your life. Back to the very first thing that was said about consciousness. Being present in your life. You know. And demand, <laughs> demand what you want in a loud voice. I love that one. You know. It's a profound lesson, actually. One of my favorite contemporary songs is um, Sarah Bareilles. Sarah Bareilles has a song called Brave that's out there. I want to see you be brave. It's about say what you want to say and let the words come out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave because so many of us don't don't stand up for ourselves, don't say what we want to say and then run around regretting it and rehearsing it in our own minds. What I should have said, what I would have done, run this tape all the time, instead of just saying it once and getting it out, and it has whatever effect it has. You know, it, and it's not easy. It's tough because we're so insecure, <laughs> frankly. So what if we say it and the person gets mad? What if we say it and they, we look foolish, we feel silly? What if we say it and, you know, what it's like, it's like being afraid to ask someone out on a date kind of thing. Or go to a teenage dance and watch kids, you know, like afraid to ask someone to dance because what if they say no? Because nobody ever wants to get rejected. So you never want to ask someone something unless you know in advance they're going to say yes. So most people, what they do in relationships is they try to manipulate the relationship anyway so that they get what they want without having to ask for it. Because if they ask for it, what if the answer is no? You know, because as if we're so fragile, we're going to just fall apart if the answer is no. You know, and sometimes people do fall apart when the answer is no. But mostly we don't. We're a lot more resilient than we give ourselves credit for most of the time in life. But still we have this insecurity. So that's the thing about kids, little kids without that insecurity, until they've learned the insecurities. Before that, they just say out loud whatever they're thinking. No filter. You know, boom. That's not okay for adults to have no filter. We don't feel comfortable around adults with no filter. We label them one thing or another, and and we pat them on the head or we do whatever. <coughs> but there's a certain freedom and awareness of, in that, and being able to ask for what you want in life in general. Liberating. Takes courage. That's why I love that song, Brave. Yeah. Uh, I had a, um, a sergeant in the army. <laughs> Don't be afraid to ask. I'm not afraid to refuse. And that was a very liberating. That's great. Whatever works. Yes, my wife always, you know, she used to teach uh, confirmation class, part of confirmation class every year. And she would do this little section that she liked to call guilt 101. But um, it was assertiveness training. She used to do assertiveness training with 10th graders here all the time for many million years. One of the things that she used to say to them is, if you don't ask, the answer is definitely no. You know, if you do ask, you just improved your odds 50% at least, right? So might as well ask. You know, ask for what you want. Okay, so 
That's it with a kid. Now from the thief. You can learn seven things from this thief. Number one, do your work in secret. How do you learn that from a thief? <laughs> and what's the, and why is that a positive thing? Do your work in secret? What does that mean? Do you think? Hmm? Learn to be alone. Learn to be able to be with yourself. See, if you're a writer, you gotta do that, as Janet said. She's like, close the door and write, you know, you, unless you're doing that with a partner. It must be hard to write with somebody. It's okay to do that? You do that too. Yeah. So some of it is self-reliance. Be, being able to be self-reliant is value. Do your work in secret, because of course thieves are have to be in secret because if they're out in public they get caught obviously the whole point of being a thief is stealing something without being caught so everything they're going to do is going to be related to picturing a thief but the point is how does it relate to us doing your work in secret yeah does it also have anything to do with humility also has to do with humility absolutely does it have anything to do with humility it's like look at what i'm doing everybody you know do your work because it's your work you don't need the spotlight to do your work. Have enough humility to be able to do the work for its own sake. That's the part of doing. You're either doing the work for its own sake or because you're going to end up in the newspaper, you know, with a picture going, look, I did whatever. Not nice to get that. There's nothing wrong with that either, but that's not necessarily the reason. Yeah. Just also, if you have something that you want to get done, don't let anybody else interfere with it. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, if you want to have something you want to get done, do it. And somebody else is interfering. The more public you are in trying to do that, the more you're asking for interference and uh, and people to tell you no, you can't do it. Also, do your work in secret because otherwise someone's going to say no, don't do it. Right? And how many things wouldn't have gotten done if they'd listened to people saying no, don't do it? Okay. Number two, if you do not complete a task at one night, return to it the next. What's the point of that? Well, first of all, if you're a thief, I guess you know. You, So come back. Even if you didn't finish something, don't see it through to the end. The value of seeing something through to the end. How many things didn't happen because somebody just quit just before being successful? Right? How many times in life? Yeah? He wasn't successful quite. Trying to break in, didn't do it, maybe? Or maybe left evidence, wanted to come back and finish the job. Oh, he wouldn't go back. Yeah, I don't know. Don't ask me. I was Reb Zushius who said this. What do I know? But I think the point was... Perseverance. perseverance. Yeah, the point was, it's so easy to quit. I'm frustrated. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out the lock. I couldn't figure out the combination to the safe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like, get some more help and then come back and try it again tomorrow night as long as I can get in again to do it. The, the value of perseverance certainly in all the things I've ever studied and read in my life, in my short, brief life, is that um, perseverance is probably the number one quality of success from the people. It's more, more important than brains and more important than talent and more important than connections and more important than anything else is simple perseverance, sticking with it until you succeed. That, you know, it's the Thomas Edison story, obviously, about all the things he invented and his statements that, you know, you failed a thousand times or whatever, and he said, no, I just had a thousand different ways it wasn't going to work until I figured out how it was going to work. You know, you just 
perseverance. Okay, and the next is love your coworkers. Hmm. Have respect for the people that you work with. If you like the people you work with, you'll have a better life. If you're going to work with them every day, you'll, you know, it's one of the worst things in the world is hating to go to work. There's lots of reasons people hate going to work, but hating to go to work because I've got to be with those people every day, you know, it's like a nightmare because they're there, <laughs> you know, and unless you have, unless you're the boss and can fire them all and start all over again, you don't get to vote on that. You know, no one asked you, would you like to change all your coworkers, you know, when you apply for the job? And if you don't like your coworkers, let us know. We'll be sure to clear them all out. You know, it just doesn't work that way. The coworkers are who they are. They're the coworkers. Someone else gave you those coworkers. Your <coughs> business, your boss, your congregation, your whomever, they gave you your coworkers. You don't get to vote on it. You only get to decide what you're going to do about it and how you're going to work with them, how you're going to experience them, how you're going to relate to them, and whether you're going to do it in a way that brings people together and makes you makes it a positive experience and a loving place to be or not. I mean, you know, you can't control other people. That's the other thing. Your coworkers are who they are. You can only control you. You can't control the circumstances of life. You can only control your attitude about those circumstances when they happen. That's part of what this is about. <coughs> okay. Risk your life to achieve your goal. It's a grand statement. What do you think? A little overstated? What? What's, what's the point of him saying risk your life? Be all in. Be all in. Be, go for it. It's be all in. So if you're going to do it, do it. You know, if you're going to be successful, you need to give yourself over to whatever it is you're doing in life. Relationships, work, friendships, family, all the things we do in life. You're either in or you're not. It's very difficult to be half in on all of those things or any of those things, as we all know, because we try that. I'll, I'll be just a little in. It's hard to be a little in on things that matter in life. You, because, you know, you know me, I'm always saying what's most important is showing up. You either show up or you don't. Yeah, Jill. Maybe, um, be a little vulnerable. Also be a little vulnerable. Be willing to be vulnerable. Yeah, that's risking your life is, you're right. Being willing to be vulnerable and open in, in what you're doing. Be ready to exchange all you have for even the smallest gain. Any lesson there? That's, that's part of the be all in, it seems like. Yeah. I think it's pretty much similar. Be willing to endure physical hardship, same kind of things. You know, either you're all in or you're not. You know, go, well, that's too hard, I don't want to do it. It might hurt. And be devoted to your work and give no thought to doing anything else. That's the other thing. This is about back to intention and kavanah, which is focus, which is... Are you willing to give yourself over to whatever you're doing 100%? You know, and that's sort of the most important. Okay. One more, number 14. Yeah, number 14. 
Wait, you want another one? Six. You like six? I didn't have six. Oh, you have the, the older version. Now you'll have to take that home. Everybody else doesn't have it. You did six last time. It's a great one, though. So we're going to do 14. Reb Yisachar Dov of Radishitz traveled to see his Rebbe. The hardest thing is reading the names. Reb Yaakov Yitzchak, the Chose of Lublin. Chose means the seer, the seer of Lublin, S-E-E-R. Um, arriving at his Rebbe's study, he said, show me one general way that all of us might serve God. Because after all, these are Hasidim, Hasidic Rebbe's, that's what they're all about. How can we serve God? One way, the seer said, what makes you think there's one way? Are people all the same that a single practice would suit them all? Then how am I to teach people to find God? Rabbi Yisachar Dove asked. It's impossible to tell people how they should serve. For one, oh, I think I had this conversation with you about five minutes ago. For one, the way is the way of study. For another, the way is the way of prayer. For another, the way is the way of fasting or feasting. For another, the way is the way of service to one's neighbor. I just said all of this. Then, I must have read this, then what shall I tell those who ask me for guidance in this area? Tell them this, the Jose said, carefully observe the way of your own heart, see what stirs your passion for God and godliness, and then do that with all your heart and with all your strength. We read every service, every bar mitzvah, every bat mitzvah, Stands up here and says, We read the Ve'ahavta. Every service. It's in the Torah. Follows the Shema. We have the Shema and the Ve'ahavta. In the service. In the Torah. And the Ve'ahavta begins, Love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your being. <clears throat> However you want to translate, with all your heart. With your whole soul, your whole spirit, the whole meodecha with all your strength. Um, or it could be with all your stuff. Meodecha also means all of your possessions, everything that you own to love God. The rabbis ask, well, what does that mean? How do you love God? We have it several times in the Torah. You're commanded to love God. It's interesting because you're, you know, commanded to love God and you're commanded to love your neighbor as yourself. Similar. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And the rabbis say, no, nah, the way to find to show that you love God is by loving your neighbor. Because guess what? Your neighbor is made in the image of God. So if you want to show that you love God, love your neighbor. Not so easy. Easier to love God. Oh, I love God. Thank Bless you, God. And, you, you know, everybody can say that. Loving your neighbor, now you got trouble. You know, most people don't love their neighbors. Most people are irritated by their neighbors, you know. <laughs> It's like that neighbor who keeps whatever and grows that tree and shouldn't cut the leaves and things are dropping in my backyard and the dog's barking and the, all the good reasons not to love your neighbor. Much harder to love your neighbor than to love God. Loving God is like, you know, airy-fairy, whatever, nothing, you know. But in Jewish tradition, it's not so much about, you know, I, I love you, God. That's why it says, Loving God in Jewish tradition is doing something is how you act. It's not about feeling. Because love isn't about feeling. Love is about acting. Love is about behavior. We, in the modern American world, tend to think of love, you know, as a feeling. But love isn't about feeling. It's nice that you have feelings. 
But back to where we've had this conversation many times tonight, nobody cares about your feelings. They care how you treat them. You can have all the beautiful feelings you want in the world, and then if you're screwing somebody over in business or any other way, that's all they know about you. They don't know about the love in your heart. They only know about the actions of your body and your mind and your, and your hands and your feet and your mouth. That's what they know about. And love is the same. How does someone know that you love them? Yeah, but because you, even telling them you love them is one of you, is an action. Saying I love you is saying, is doing something. But mostly people know you by what you do, not by what you say. You know, how you act. Your kids, same thing. You know, some, when you're doing parenting workshops and all that, that was just nice to have rules for them and say, do what I say, but what they do is they do what you do. So because it's your actions that matter in life. Your actions are the role model for each other, for your kids, and for your partners, and for anyone else, your friends, your family. It's what you do, whether you show up or whether you don't show up. You know, if you love me, but you're staying away, what kind of love is that? You know, I'm not feeling well, and you're like phoning it in. You know, that doesn't feel like love. So that's here too. Here is... When we talk about loving God, we talk, we mean how you act in the world in such a way that enhances godliness in the world. That's how you show you love God. How you treat other human beings is your way of demonstrating, quote, love for God. Yeah. Well, they probably don't get taught the way I teach it because, you know, who knows how I'm teaching it. But yes, I mean, these are, these are traditional Hasidic stories rewritten in a little easier English by Rami Shapiro, Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who trans, retranslated them in, in their own way. And I like the book, so that's why I use the, these versions of them. But yeah, these are all traditional Hasidic stories. Um, so they read them too. Yes. I, I'm, uh, well, I, you know, I don't know. To tell you the truth, I don't know exactly. I know these are traditional Hasidic stories, so as far as I assume, the answer is yes. Depends. You know, if you're, if you're, um, you're more likely in, uh, if you're a Chabad Hasid to study, uh, the Rebbe and the writings of, of, um, of Menachem Schneerson or the, or the, or the down the line of, of the Rebbe's, but, um, which none of these are exactly. They're from other Rebbe's. Um, but yes, it, this is a traditional way of study is sharing Hasidic stories among Hasidim too. Whether they come to the same conclusions that we would come in this room, that I can't tell you, but uh, because we see the world through our own eyes. Whoops, time's up. So um, in any event, I, I wanted this because this is really for me the most important lesson, which is following your own heart. Um, that there isn't one right way of of uh, prayer. There isn't one right way of of sacred service. There isn't one right way of healing the world. There isn't one right way of being Jewish or being any kind of spiritual religious person. There isn't one right religion in the world. Um, there's human beings who are all, according to our Torah, 
created in the image of God. It doesn't say Jewish human beings created in the image of God. Abraham came a lot later than the opening chapter of Genesis. You know, first there was ten generations in the Noah, and then ten generations more, and Abraham came, and we always call Abraham as the founder of sort of Jewish civilization. But clearly, whoever wrote the Torah meant to say that all human beings are made in the divine image. We may interpret it different ways. We may create our own unique rituals and customs and traditions based upon our own communities and how they grew in the world. And, but fundamentally, um, when we are supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, um, there are two principles involved. Number one is you're supposed to love yourself. That's the, the whole world was created for my sake. Because if you love your neighbor as you love yourself and you hate yourself, I don't want to be your neighbor. So you need to love yourself, number one. You then need to see in your neighbor, in the other, a reflection of yourself and of the sacredness and divinity in yourself. And if we could just do that, I say just as if it's easy, uh, we would have a different world than the world we live in. Uh, so I think that's one of the fundamental teachings of uh, of the Hasidic Rebbe's is finding that spark of the divine within ourselves and finding it reflected in others and spending your days searching for the sacredness in the everyday. And if we do that, go on that little blessing treasure hunt that I said, it will transform all of our lives. So time is up, and I thank you for being here and listening to me ramble on for an hour and a half. <clears throat> and uh, I appreciate you all coming. <laughs>